0: Hello and welcome to Beyond Lithium, the podcast that looks at the future of clean energy storage beyond the third element. I'm your host, Nate Kirchhoffer. For this episode, I'm joined by Mike Marshak, founder and CEO of Otoro Energy, based in Boulder, Colorado, where he is also a professor of chemistry at the University of Colorado. Mike, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Nate. Yeah, my pleasure. So, You and I met back in July in Atlanta at the department of energy's energy storage grand challenge summit, which is kind of a mouthful. And I think there we recognize that our companies are working on similar technologies, which I definitely want to hear a little bit about from you. And while we were there, we were also more broadly learning about the super promising sort of federal level trends in energy storage investment and deployment and research and. I I want to talk about the summit later in this discussion, but to start off, I'd love to hear more about the technology that Otoro is pursuing and where you got the name for the company and anything you'd like to share about
1: flow batteries in general. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. Great introduction to start off the, the name of the company, Otoro. Well, that's the Japanese name for bluefin tuna belly sushi. So some of the best sushi in the world is Otoro. And it came from a conversation I was having with someone at one point where I said that the utility market, the electric grid, operating the electric grid without energy storage is sort of like operating a sushi restaurant without a refrigerator. If you can't store raw fish, you either run out because people eat it all, or it rots somewhere. (laughs) And that's sort of what happens with electricity. Either we run out and that's not good or we have an oversupply and a lot is wasted so that was sort of the the concept i also like the idea of bluefin tuna in general are just one of the most majestic fish when i was in graduate school in boston i got to go whale watching and saw some bluefin and what they do is they congregate off of cape cod and eat and just basically fatten up storing energy And then they migrate all the way across the Atlantic, essentially without eating anything to go spawn near the Mediterranean. And so this beautiful fish that's built to swim long distances, it's incredibly streamlined, it uses some counterflow heat exchange in its circulatory system. It's just an incredible fish and it stores all this energy. And that's actually what makes Otoro so good is the fat in the marbling of the the meat. It's like the bacon of sushi.
0: I think there's some good analogies there for sure with energy storage. Can you tell us a little bit more about Otoro's technology?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. So as I was saying, the utility market without storage can be kind of a mess. And it's not just about being able to store energy. It's also about being able to store it where it's being demanded. So just the same way that someone Working in logistics needs to think about where do you want your warehouse or how much inventory do you need? You wanna typically place those warehouses, if you're Amazon, for example, as close to your customers as possible to minimize that last little distance. And so we need to not just store energy somewhere, but we need to store it in a place that is valuable to customers. If you need to transport it 100, 200 miles away, then you have to provide either a ton of transmission Or you have to deal with the risk of power lines going down. You have to deal with the limitations of capacity. So for example, when we had the huge grid problems in Texas, it wasn't like there wasn't electricity somewhere in the US that they could have used. It was a transmission problem problem predominantly. I mean, there was a production problem, but they couldn't access electricity that was being produced elsewhere. And the same in California, with wildfires and things, they shut down transmission lines. It's not that they have a problem producing electricity, but this transmission problems. We need to think about the total power capacity, the duration that you can operate at that power, and also the location, and being able to combine all of those things together with cost, safety, scalability, the abundance of the raw materials, the efficiency, et cetera. So I got interested in flow batteries, shortly after my PhD work, and it was really intriguing that you could store energy in materials dissolved in water. And that offers a ton of advantages because then if you want to store twice as much energy, you don't need twice as many batteries. You just need twice as much liquid in a tank. I like to compare it with the way you work a gasoline powered car. If you want to drive twice as far, you need a bigger gas tank. You don't need another engine. You don't need all of the other components that go into that engine. So, there's some really good scalability benefits to flow batteries. And they've been around for a long time. They were developed as early as the 1970s by NASA. In the 1980s, the vanadium flow battery was invented and uh, popularized. But the chemistries and the performance have hit these roadblocks. And I feel like, at least when I came into the scene, there was some steady progress, but it was often seen externally sort of like the fuel cell world it's kind of promised to be there but you know a lot of these things take 30 40 years to get to market and to get fully optimized but also to find the right market to get started in so one of the clearest needs with flow batteries is lower cost liquid electrolyte, the the salts that go into the water that store all the energy the vanadium that was the highest performance best most commercialized most efficient system it tends to not be abundant enough to do worldwide grid scale deployment and also the price of vanadium fluctuates because it's used as a small component of high strength steel so if there's a large demand for high strength steel then the price of vanadium can can skyrocket and then it can fall back down so acquiring those materials in long term contracts have been difficult so anyway when I started my journey in this area, I was a postdoc at Harvard and developed some organic materials for flow batteries, things probably similar or related to the types of materials you're looking at. But then when I started my independent career at C. Boulder, I wanted to go a little bit independent from there. I also wanted to address some of the shortcomings I saw with some of the organics, particularly around the stability of at least the ones that I was working with uh, were not stellar, and I got interested in metals. My background is inorganic chemistry, which is metals and how they coordinate and react and, and bind to different materials. And mm-hmm. I got interested in these organic materials called chelating agents that that bind to metals very, very strongly. So one of those is, for example, is called EDTA. It stands for ethylene diamine tetraacetic acid. But it's something that's so common, you'll see it on almost like every shampoo, face lotion, conditioner, et cetera. I think it's also in mayonnaise. <laughs> I think that was the I was going to say, of... I think it's
0: also in some food, yeah.
1: Yeah. So it's super non-toxic. Listeners may have heard about chelation therapy, so people are actually consuming or getting injected with this stuff. What these things do is they bind metals very, very strongly and don't let go. And that's interesting, because when they bind the metal under the right conditions, they can make that metal soluble in water at neutral pH, which is really amazing. So EDTA not surprisingly is used in things like rust remover because it'll take iron oxide rust and it'll dissolve it and bring that iron into solution. So the other thing that these chelating agents do to the metals is by binding so strongly, they stabilize that metal and they make it very difficult to add or remove electrons from them. And you can take advantage of that because if it's difficult to add an electron, you're going to ha- only able to add an electron to that metal to store energy at a very, very high voltage. And from that context, I got interested because I thought, can we get to some really high voltages in water? And can we use these very, very stable metal ions with these very strongly binding chelating agents to stabilize all that? and Looking through the literature, I wasn't the first person to think of these. There have been papers and experiments back in the early 1980s, into the, in even the in 1960s and 70s on all these different things. But it really took an eye for understanding how the metal coordinated specifically two different chelating agents. So there's a couple different types. And we found that swapping out EDTA for a, a, one carbon atom different was all it took to allow chromium to go from something that was only a few percent efficient to 99.99% efficient. So that was really, really exciting. We did that in my research lab at CU Boulder and then published that, patented it. And then we were quickly swept up in an RPE project where we made more of the material. We did a lot of tests ourselves and we sent a bunch of it to partners at Raytheon Technologies Research Center in East Hartford, Connecticut, and they have a great team that's developed vanadium-based flow batteries, and they were basically able to take our materials, put them into a typical vanadium flow battery and get it to work very, very well. And what was awesome about it, our materials, because they're higher voltage, give a ton of advantages. You can always stack more individual cells together in series to get higher voltage, But if you have a higher cell voltage, you get a lot of other benefits. So one of them is power. The power in watts that you get out of a battery is related to the voltage of the cell squared divided by the resistance. And so going up a little bit in voltage gets you this quadratic relationship in power. So we could get much higher than other people were typically seeing. The other thing that we have a benefit is with efficiency at a higher voltage if every battery has the same resistive losses in it then a higher voltage is going to give you a higher efficiency for that same resistance so that's really the benefit of lithium lithium was been such a breakthrough in battery technology because if you think about the typical alkaline batteries like energizer duracell that's stamped 1.5 volts on the side car battery is 2 volts or 2.1 volts per cell so you stack six of them and you get to 12-ish volts but the big breakthrough with lithium is not just the sort of lightweight power and energy and all that stuff it's the fact that you get to this really high voltage i mean 3.6 3.8 4.2 there's a number of different types of chemistries there but yeah the point is that you get to these really high voltages that drives how efficient they are it drives how much power you get out of lithium batteries so it's a similar concept but we're operating at half of lithium like 1.62 volts so a lot lower but we are in water and that's a big benefit for us because water is not only non-flammable and low cost but it has a really good heat capacity so if you're driving these very very large scale batteries they're essentially in their own nature, liquid cooled, you have water flowing in and out of the electrodes at all times carrying these metal ions like chromium. So we're not at where lithium is, but I don't think that it's really desirable to get to that high a voltage. If you have to sacrifice things like the water component, for example.
0: Right. Right. Yeah. So you've touched on a bunch of different concepts here. One of them, the helate molecule, this EDTA, you modified it by a single atom. And that's something I like to talk about in organic chemistry is it's tunable to the atomic level and each atom is important. And it's so combinatorially diverse that you need a keen eye to figure it out. But also an intuition about how that chemistry works is really important. And you also mentioned uh, chromium, which I think is the key metal that you're using in your batteries. Are you using chromium on both the positive and the negative? side of the
1: flow battery? Yeah, we looked at that. But we use the chromium only on the negative terminal okay. for a couple of reasons. One is chromium just works better on the negative side, but also we're cycling the chromium through these various redox states that determine the number of electrons it has, and it's going from chromium three, which is the same totally non-toxic state that's on the surface of stainless steel. And it's been adding an electron to go to chromium plus two. We're trying to stay away from the highly oxidizing Mm. side or the the chromium that has very few electrons. So chromium plus six in particular, chrome six is very, very toxic, not good for the environment. And by keeping the chromium on the negative side, we completely avoid any of those issues. In fact, when you have chromium six in the environment, like when it's been leaked into the groundwater or something, they will remediate that by adding EDTA to force it to get reduced from chromium-6 down to chromium-3 and make it soluble and non-toxic. A huge component of what I'm excited about with our chemistry is how non-toxic it is. Chromium coordinated to EDTA, when it's a a specific chromium-51 isotope, is used as one of the gold standards to measure kidney function. This uh, Okay, so you can actually literally drink this stuff, yeah. Not just drink it, they inject this stuff into people's bloodstream and it's so inert that it doesn't react with the body at all. And so, because it doesn't react, the kidneys filter it out Mm -hmm. through the urine. And that is such a consistent rate that that's what they use to measure how well your kidneys operate. So amazing. And that inertness, that the fact that it doesn't react is because this EDTA or these chelating agents bind the metal so strongly, the metal can't do anything. Cause it's completely tied up and the chelating agent is all tied up with the metal, so it just sits there in your blood and then it goes out. So that's a huge benefit. Yeah. And one of the things that we're doing now is we're working with some consultants and third-party labs to do toxicology studies and really prove this out beyond just anecdotal things like, Hey, it's a chemical that's Currently used to inject into humans and animals. I want to know does this interact with frogs or, or fish or how toxic is it? You know, because everything has a limit, right? Even water. Exactly. Even water. So those studies are probably not super pleasant, but I think they're important to do whenever you're talking about technology like ours, which, if successful, will be scaled to the point that it will be one of the top manufactured chemicals in the country. You know, it'd be one of the top thousand, right? right? If we if we scale to the gigawatt scale. So we need to know all of that ahead of time. Absolutely. One one thing that I was also struck by that you're talking about is this
0: 1.62 volt operating voltage in water, which is impressive because for the listeners that don't know, you typically need 1.2 volts to split water. You might remember doing that in middle school or something in an experiment where if you apply something like 1.2 volts, and you've got two electrodes sitting in water, you can produce hydrogen on one side and oxygen on the other. And so you're actually able to operate at a higher voltage. And I'm assuming that's because the kinetics are favorable for the metal production in this case, as compared to hydrogen production, if I'm interpreting what you're saying correctly. So you're actually able to go outside of that water splitting window, which is really cool. That's just like a nice effect of the chemistry you're pursuing.
1: Yeah, absolutely. That's a great point. So you're right. Water typically will decompose with an electrical current to make hydrogen and oxygen from H2O. But that requires catalysts to operate efficiently. So, you know, the 1.23 volts is it's the minimum required, but almost no one can achieve it. If you could achieve a very fast rate of hydrogen production at 1.23 volts, that would be a huge benefit for the hydrogen economy. It typically requires much higher voltages and precious metal catalysts to do it. And so part of the trick in our case is that the types of things that typically catalyze reactions like water splitting are metal ions. And so you might think, well, putting metals in in water is a really bad idea. And our insight is we wanted to find the right chelating agent that would bind to the chromium and not let water get near it. So we've insulated the metal, which is where the electron is being stored from the water, which is having to sit on the outside of this metal complex, sort of looking through the window at the party, uh, so to speak. Yeah. So uh, so the water really can't react. We've done a lot of studies on trying to understand this and we can take our charged solution at something like a 95% state of charge. And it just sits there. And as long as it's kept away from oxygen, I think we measured a rate of like 3% self-discharge per month. And we think that that's caused either by part per million level impurities of oxygen in the atmosphere that we have, or it's small catalysts, just a few nanoparticles, 3% a month is so small that even a fleck of something impurity Mm -hmm. in there can can catalyze the the hydrogen evolution reaction. The benefit in our case though, is that it's reversible. So if you evolve hydrogen, you can just take that hydrogen and feed it back into the system and recharge the battery. It takes a hit on electrical efficiency, but it's not irreversible. And that's a Mm -hmm. key distinction because it's the 3% capacity loss per month, but you can just recharge it. You don't lose that permanently. And. I'll note, like, what's really cool about our system, we keep trying to come up with new and creative ways to measure the decomposition or the decay of our materials. And so far, we haven't seen any direct, conclusive evidence that they've decayed over our baseline. It's sort of exciting and frustrating because you tell people we've never observed any loss in capacity, and they don't believe you. But... We have, what a good, what a good problem to have. We've, we keep <laughs> trying to find it. But I think it's a testament to the fact that metals are metals and they don't decompose. That's really amazing. So a lot of this has been super technical
0: so far yeah. and I want to shift to the business case side of things because I'm an environmentalist. I like the technology, but technology is only viable if it makes economic sense too. So there has to be some thoughts about this. I'm curious what your past commercialization is, or if there are particular use cases that you see your flow batteries serving really well?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, I guess to start, we've received some generous funding, both through the RPE funding that I mentioned, and then my startup company, Otoro Energy, got $4.2 million from the US Department of Energy for this advanced manufacturing. So making a metric ton of this material and testing it out again with our partners at Raytheon. And Raytheon has helped us and done their own independent studies, looking at the techno-economic analysis and come to the conclusion that we can hit and actually get pretty significantly below five cents per kilowatt hour levelized cost of storage once you get to the gigawatt scale manufacturing phase. So the question then becomes, as you're mentioning, what is the market, how do you get there? because I think this has become the big problem with many of these emerging energy storage technologies is people build these multi-million dollar systems you know, at a loss and then they try to demonstrate them and they run out of money before anybody is willing to feel like they're de-risked enough to move forward with it. I think another big challenge in the past has been people often will either iterate on technologies that have already been developed, or it'll be incremental improvement on an existing platform, or it'll be someone trying to resurrect a technology from the 70s or 1980s out of the grave, so to speak, and ideally put a modern 21st century twist on that. Maybe it has a new use case, but it's not really this sort of ground shifting change the way having a fundamentally new chemistry is. Think about the comparison. We've made incremental changes in alkaline batteries, but a Duracell from 30 years ago is not that different from one today. Um, But lithium changed the game, right? And that's a fundamentally different chemistry that is better in every way. It's rechargeable, it's higher voltage, it's higher power, everything. So we talk about the limitations of that, but those limitations exist because it's so much Far and away better than everything else anyway when it comes to commercialization i think that just like we innovated on the core chemistry we need innovation on the commercialization side and the path to market as well even though the utility grid is the largest if you're trying to just target marketplaces that want to see five cents per kilowatt hour you're not going to be profitable for a very long time so finding those first markets are really really key and really difficult there are specific locations where electricity is not five cents per kilowatt hour or anywhere close. Places like islands that that are burning diesel that need to take diesel imports or microgrids, these are all examples of places that have very, very high cost of power. You can also think about some remote cabin in the woods or a cell phone tower set up in the middle of nowhere. But when you're talking about those kinds of markets now, you're talking about Places that are difficult to access. So now you have to think about how much service does this thing take? If we put this on the top of a mountain next to a cell phone tower, how often do we have to climb that mountain to maintain the system? And then what happens at the end of life? Do we have to dismantle this thing and carry it back down again? The same thing if you put this on some island somewhere. If your first product is going out in the middle of nowhere, that's a really difficult task.
0: Yeah. And I know that vanadium has had those issues. There's batteries on the Island of Hawaii that are vanadium flow that have not been able to be decommissioned just because it's such a mess with that chemistry specifically. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it's interesting that you have brought up this five cents per kilowatt hour metric. And I think that is a good segue to talking about the DOE meeting the summit where you and I met because just for a little bit of backstory on it in 2021 the doe established this long duration storage shot and their target is a 90 percent cost reduction for energy storage technologies that can discharge for 10 hours or longer and ultimately that means that these technologies need to provide power at less than five cents per kilowatt hour for what's known as a levelized cost of storage, basically a way of doing a net present value calculation for the cost of the total amount of energy that a battery provides over its lifetime. So then following this long duration storage shot, they released these so-called 2030 technology strategy assessments this July, which was the purpose of this meeting where you and I met, and they did it for a bunch of different technologies like lead acid, lithium ion, thermal energy, hydrogen, but they also did it for flow batteries. And I thought it was pretty promising. And it sounds like you believe that at least with your technology or maybe flow batteries in general, we can actually get down to this five cents per kilowatt hour levelized cost. Do you think that's the right metric to focus on? Is there something else that you're thinking about with it?
1: I think that it's a good high level target. The way I think about five cents per kilowatt hour of the levelized cost of storage, it's. What's the incremental cost on your utility bill per kilowatt hour that storage is going to add? That's a good way to put it. I think that it's a good target to be at five cents, but it's not going to be your first market. You need to find places where people are paying a dollar a kilowatt hour. <laughs> you know, I was reading an article recently about people trying to charge electric vehicles in Texas in the summertime when the AC is cranking and it can cost over a dollar a kilowatt hour to charge an electric vehicle at a very fast rate, these level three DC superchargers. Obviously, you can charge for a lot less at home, but it takes a lot longer. So, you know, there's an interesting market. You know, one of the challenges I think with batteries is that they're fundamentally boring. If they're working properly, you don't notice them until they fail. It's like the electric grid, right? People take it for granted until it doesn't work. It's hard to market something like that. It's not as sexy as a Tesla where you hit the accelerator and you can feel this power and it's fun to drive and people get to see it on the roads. These are are typically hidden. They're not as fun. So I've done a lot of thinking and planning on how do you bring something to market that people would want to care about it, would get excited about it. How do you market something so that people see i can charge my car at home at night and know that that power came from sunlight at two in the afternoon yesterday that's exciting but how do you sell that to a customer and putting it out in the middle of a solar or wind farm 200 miles away from a city is not necessarily the best way to do that i think a huge advantage of our system is again we're water based we're ph neutral We're non-corrosive, non-toxic, non non flammable et cetera, et cetera. And if we can get a system that people will feel comfortable having near a home or a business, I think that there's an untapped market there that could be huge. As you mentioned beyond lithium, you know, the lithium has a lot of advantages, but I think that when it comes to grid scale, the more lithium batteries you start packing into a small area, the more things can go wrong. I think the failure rate of lithium batteries is something like 1 in 12 million. If 1 in 12 million laptops overheats, it's not that big a deal. But if you have a million cells packed into a shipping container and one of them starts to overheat, then you can create a cascading chain reaction and things can blow up.
0: Totally, and we see lithium batteries still keep catching on fire and in different locations and it's definitely problematic. You know, one thing that I thought of while you were talking about this. So we're recording this at the end of August here. I have several friends that are going to Burning Man soon. And I feel like you could actually put one of your batteries in a bus with a solar array and drive it out to Burning Man and actually have a very public demonstration of solar battery storage that's safe in a really harsh environment. But I don't know, that could be a kind of a cool way to do it. Cause then it's out in a temporary location where it truly would serve that purpose. Just an idea.
1: That's a good one. One of my favorite thoughts was perhaps like if we could do some sort of military test where side by side, you have a lithium battery and then you have a flow battery. Maybe you, you test them head to head for a year or six months or whatever. And then at the end of the test, you either shoot them or put a grenade or something, blow them mm-hmm. up and watch the lithium catch fire. And then you do the lithium first and then you do the, the flow battery next to it and then you have the water from the flow battery putting out the lithium. <laughs> oh yeah, that's a that's a great <laughs> idea. I thought that would be kind of funny is yeah. <laughs> adding insult
0: to injury, I suppose, or something. Yeah. <laughs> well, okay. So as a fellow entrepreneur, like we we're saying this has to be economically viable. So I'm curious what Otoro is pursuing on the business side right now in terms of like financing partnerships, I mean, like all those things happen in tandem. Is there anything that you're at liberty to share about that side of
1: things? Yeah, we are always looking for partners, customers, our potential customers, and investors. So, you know, a good way to reach out is, you know, my website needs a, a revamp, but my email is mike, M-I-K-E at com, or you can reach out on LinkedIn. Obviously, there's there was a lot of excitement around clean tech a couple of years ago, and it's sort of slowly receded. But I think that the sustained government support for this, as well as the sustained need for energy storage, is going to continue to drive enthusiasm here. I mean, we see continuously that not only is power the center of so many different news sources now, even the horrible fires in Maui seem like they may have been caused by power lines the same way that they were in California. The fact is, is that moving forward, we're probably gonna see an environment where as soon as it gets windy, power companies start shutting off power to people. And that can get scary, especially if it's summertime and it's really hot. And even more scary is if it's winter time and it's really cold and people are now being, kind of transitioning to electric heat pumps, which are great and efficient, but if people are losing power because, the risk of fire from transmission, we're going to need batteries near residential communities, near businesses, and being able to have a battery that's not going to harm the environment. It's not going to release toxic fumes. It's not going to catch fire. I think that's really, really important. And that's, I hope, where we can distinguish ourselves from the other companies that are doing some great things, but perhaps don't have that level of safety and environmental benefit.
0: I think that sentiment is a really great one to end this episode on because I think it's just so important that we embrace energy storage because, like you just said, it improves security of society. It improves the well-being of our communities. It's going to allow us to have power everywhere because you said it's not just we need to put these somewhere, we need to put batteries everywhere because we need electrical power everywhere because it sustains our way of life and it allows us to have all the services and ancillary benefits of being in society. So I, I want to say thank you so much for your time today and sharing your technology that you're pursuing, but also your insights about the economics and the market and trends. Yeah. Thank you again for being here. Thanks a lot, Nate. This has been great. And thanks to you for tuning in. Again, I'm Nate Kirchhofer, co-founder and CEO of BioZen Batteries, which produces this show as part of the Clean Power Media Group. My guest was Michael Marshak, founder and CEO of Otoro Energy and professor of chemistry at CU Boulder. If you'd like to interact more, please visit cleanpower.media or send us an email at hello at biozenbatteries.com. Please write a comment, like, follow, share, or even leave us a voice message on your favorite episodes. Many thanks to Curtis Warden for the great theme music and Abe Mesrich for helping with all the little things behind the scenes. Be sure to join us next time on the Beyond Lithium podcast.